This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK12. And by audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our star trek books and comics show i'm christopher jones and with me once again as he is every single week from dallas texas is matthew rushing matthew we're doing a little flip thing here we had a time zone it's like a temporal distortion today between america and the uk and japan you got to talk to James Swallow as I was snoozing over here in Japan. How'd that go? Chris, it went great. Had fun, as everybody's going to hear in the interview. And uh, it was it was a blast. I love getting to talk to James. Uh, honestly, the um, other side of the page we have is always epic. James is great. Uh, we just I think we talked an extra 30 minutes or so about all sorts of things afterwards. And so uh, I think, uh, you know, this being the last episode of the year, uh, 2013, I think everybody's really going to enjoy it. We got a great show for you, um, so definitely time to to sit back. I mean, relax, grab a cup of hot cocoa or a coffee or scotch or something, and just enjoy it because this is going to be a rip roaring episode. How about a double shot eggnog? Well, you could do that, Chris. I don't personally like eggnog, but, um, you know, if somebody were to put enough booze in it, I might try it. I think the, the, the trick to eggnog is it's two parts rum, one part eggnog. There you go. See, that might actually make it stomachable. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, we are all getting into the holiday mood here as the year winds down. And we have a little bit of Star Trek book news left for you this year. And the first one is, as our colleague from Earl Grey, Philip Gilfus, would say, it's time for us to judge a book by its cover, Matthew, because we have a peek at the cover for No Time Like the Past. That's right. We sure do, Chris. And, um, you know, as anyone might remember, we have talked about this before. This is going to be the Greg Cox novel that joins Seven of Nine with our intrepid captain, James C. Kirk. Now, I cannot think of a more bodacious Borg for him to meet than Seven of Nine. In fact, does this kind of screw with continuity somehow? The fact that Kirk has met a Borg? 
Oh, I'm sure it does. And as we just did on the Ready Room this week, we did Relativity. We know Seven is all about effing with time. So no surprise that she's here. Well, it's not. Um, So this is going to be really interesting. Kirk's going to be on a diplomatic mission. Um, He's going to find himself with an unexpected ally in a dangerous situation, Annika Seven. Um, Apparently she's related to Gary Seven at this point. I think so. Uh, Must be his... Yeah. His daughter, maybe? Yeah, something like that, which, wow, did he have a hot daughter or what? Um, <laughs> and uh, Seven had been taken apart, apparently some sort of archaeological expedition, an obscure planetoid in the Delta Quadrant. And the details really aren't important. The biggest detail is is that Seven and Captain Kirk meet, which I wonder what move he's going to put on her, because I feel like Captain Kirk wouldn't pass up an opportunity to sleep with something quite so beautiful. <laughs> well, I noticed your choice of words when you were describing what's going to happen in the book a moment ago. Instead of saying that this book brings together Captain Kirk and Seven of Nine, you said it joins them. Yes, yes, I, I did. I, I did say join. I did mean that on purpose. Uh, it's 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 somewhat of a merging, some, you might say, if you know what I mean. Uh, well, so I I have a feeling that if Greg Cox, who is writing this book, is listening to the show right now, he's probably thinking, I don't think I'm going to do an interview with those guys about this book. <laughs> uh, hopefully, Greg will be back. I mean, we have gotten to talk to Greg, and it was great uh, have, getting yeah. to talk to him. So, uh, but no, in all seriousness, I, you know, this is an is a mind blowingly interesting idea to merge somebody like Seven with Kirk and. You know, nobody does, I think, um, these kind of time travel stories better than Greg. And so I am looking forward to reading this a lot. I will say also bringing these two together, it should be very interesting because they're both very, very strong-willed people. They're both intelligent characters and they're both very strong-willed characters. And I don't know exactly how Greg is going to spin the interaction between them, but they're both great characters to work with. And, and I do think it'll be very, very interesting. And and the next one, Chris is, is really exciting. We finally got the blurb for one constant star, which is uh, David R. George, the third's star Trek book, which is going to be taking place in the lost era. Now uh, we do know from the blurb. Now it, it is going to be about uh, the enterprise B uh, and apparently captain Demora Sulu. That's right. It's going to be all about Yuki Sulu's niece, who is now a captain, if we tie it into ongoing. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Uh, I I just I just caught that. I was like, okay, yeah. Oh, yep. Yep. Yeah. So so Yuki Sulu is kind of like the Tasha Yar of the the that universe. So she's going to cross over to this one and have a child with now, Demora is Hikaru Sulu's daughter, right? And Yuki is his sister. So this would be Yuki's niece. Ah, okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. So this is going to be really interesting. Uh, it, it's going to involve Demora Sulu as being the captain of the Enterprise. And then John Harriman, who used to be the captain, is is going to be involved in an incident with the Zen Kathy. And he's going to have to go and, and recover his former crewmate who gets into trouble. And so this looks fantastic. I love this era because there's so much you can do with it because there's so much we don't know. Well, and Um, you're a big Harriman fan as well. You know, I was. We read the comic with him. I thought he was great. I think they did the character well there. Um, I'd like to go back and read the 
the Lost Era book that already had Harriman in it. I haven't got a chance to do that yet. And, and so I, I think it's great to have this character back. I think it's really interesting, and I would can't wait to see why it was that he stepped down from command um, and, uh, you know, obviously had uh, Demora take over as captain, which is pretty interesting that we have two Sulus, both captains of Excelsior-class vessels. That's right. I, I think that might cause some sort of rip in space-time. Let's hope not. I mean, uh, and luckily it probably won't just because the 24th century does exist in the novel. So if it does, probably just um, fly the TARDIS in, fix that all up, and fly back out. It'll be fine. That uh, sounds like a good plan to me. All right. Well, it should be interesting, and it's nice, again, to get these books that focus on characters that are not the main characters from the series but are other characters that we are familiar with in another capacity and flesh out their stories a bit. So looking forward to that one as well. And that's from David R. George III. And also we have one more here, which we've talked about a little bit in the past, Matthew. This is Light Fantastic, where it's a follow-up to the Cold Equations trilogy, and Jeffrey Lang is going to follow up David Mack's stories by bringing Data back further, fleshing out what's happening with Data post-Cold Equations. Yeah, this is going to be interesting, especially since as Data and his daughter try to make their way in in a uh, backward, you know, alien world, um, as they obviously are, are not a part of Starfleet at this point in, in time, they're going to run into none other than holographic master criminal James Moriarty, which I don't know that that happens on a, um, you know, backward alien planet that they're living on. Um, it might not be backward, but still, it's it's going to be an alien planet. So I'm not how, sure how you get Moriarty, but this is going to be really interesting. And in, in fact, um, apparently, you know, long believed that he was uh, in that memory stick that they put him in, and apparently he's created a siphon into the real world, and uh, now he's ready to wreak havoc because basically he wants a body just like Data has now. So. This is going to be a, a, a quite an interesting story, and, and I'll be interested to see where Data ends up after this book is over. It is. Just listening to you describe it, I'm thinking, how does all that work? How does that come together? As you said, how does Moriarty end up on an alien planet? So I think this is one where seriously just... I'm going to have to grab it and read it to find out where it's going, because um, I, I like the episodes that Moriarty is in on TNG, Definitely. But I remember how it ended and how they solved the problem and what they did with him. So, yeah, a little bit difficult to imagine how he comes, you know, back into the real world and how this is going to play out. Yeah, it is going to be really interesting. Um, and so it, it, this will come out. And then um, the last cut thing that we had, Chris, and uh, the reason I didn't put it fully on the docket was just that the first two blurbs for the Seekers books came out. And um, they're not the finalized versions. And so uh, we'll put the link there in the show notes for you so you can go check that out in the Trek Collective. But that's not the finalized version, so I figured we'd wait and talk about those when they finally got the the, the back of the book um, the the way they're going to have it on the actual book. And so but that's yeah. exciting that that's partly out. You can go check that out, um, the new series that David Mack and, and Dayton Ward and uh, Kevin Dilmore are working on that we are very excited about to see. Uh, and so, yeah, all of this really rounding out, as I was talking to James on the interview, we were talking about, actually I think it was on the other side of the book, um, 
that this is going to be a really well-rounded year for for Trek books. Uh, There's a lot coming out from a lot of different parts of the Star Trek universe. So we have a lot to look forward to in 2014. Most definitely. And of course, books aren't the only thing we have to look forward to. There's been a lot of activity in the comics, especially here just to close out the year. There's been a lot of activity. You know, we had the the Burn photo comic that we talked about last week. We've had uh, more con and we've got more ongoing, which we'll talk about uh, ongoing number 28 here in just a moment. But the year is going to be kicking off with a lot more stuff as well. We've got Star Trek ongoing number 31 here, Enterprise Part 1. It's part one of an epic all-new two-part adventure that is, of course, set within the continuity of the, the Abrams verse. You know, we, we're wrapping up now, as we're going to talk about today, the last part of the Kittimer conflict story arc, which uh, takes us beyond into darkness. And then 29 and 30 are going to move us further along. And then here, we're going to find Captain Kirk and the crew facing a threat like one they've never faced before. Which, when I read that, I'm thinking, how is that possible? They faced off against Khan and Admiral Marcus, and they've had so many threats. But no, this one is going to be their own ship. That is interesting. Uh, does the Enterprise like gain sentience and then turns against them or something? Maybe. Yeah. Because that I, happened I, I in a Titan know. novel. It could be. It could be. That is a good question, just based on what we know right now. We don't know if it means that there is a duplicate of the crew that they're going to face off against, or if it's just the ship, or if it's not a duplicate, but it's just that the ship itself somehow turns against the crew, which is what I think is probably more likely. Yeah, this looks really interesting, and so uh, I'm excited. Ongoing has been relatively uh, good throughout the year in the, in the sense that uh, most of the issues have been have been well done and, and we have liked. And so I'm excited. Especially to see that Keens or backstory issue. Oh my gosh, the Keens or backstory. <laughs> Standout of the year. Gosh, goodness. Uh, that's what I got to say. Why hasn't there been more Keens or in this, you know, uh, Kittimer conflict? I'm, I'm really disappointed. I feel like uh, he needs to have a larger part in the stories. I, I feel like. He'd be the one, you know, on these covert missions, kicking a lot of ass, especially right. Klingon ass, you know. Yeah. So, well, it's handy to have a little guy like him because then, yeah. when the when the enemies think they have you trapped, he runs in like exactly. he kind of under. It's like um, oh you didn't God, even what was see the him. Player's then? name for the Charlotte Hornets. They used to have the little the little oh Muggsy Bogues, yeah, Muggsy, yeah. He was so much shorter than everyone else. I mean, he was a true weapon, and I think yeah, that we, Keenzer would be like that as well. Yeah, we just dated ourselves, Chris, with that Mosey Bogues <laughs> reference. Everybody's scratching their heads like, <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't remember players from the early 90s. Oh, at least we didn't talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Larry Bird. Huh, no kidding, or maybe a little <laughs> Penny Hardaway and, oh, goodness. Man, anyway. All right. Well, so the next thing we got coming out in comics there is going to be this Star Trek Gold Key Archives Volume 1. And uh, they're going to be uh, presenting the first comic book adventures of the USS Enterprise and her crew in this fully remastered and with a brand new throwback cover. Um, and uh, this is going to be issues 1 through 6. And so exciting to see them really going back and, and taking these old comics, remastering and putting them together. I love that. Uh, in fact, again, on the other side of the book, James and I were talking about this, and he was talking about how he loves that we do all these old comics, like these DC comics and stuff. And he's like, I even have that CD that you and Chris talk about. And 
So he's read all of these comics and he said he actually has every single Star Trek comic. Oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's great to see uh, IDW really uh, investing in these old comics and bringing them back for fans to be able to enjoy. I'm feeling a resurgence of the Gold Key comics because we talked about this story on the Ready Room maybe last week that Hot Wheels, they're doing these Star Trek cars coming up in 2014, and the Mm -hmm. artwork that they're doing on the cars, they're taking from the Gold Key comics. Mm. So there's something going on here with a resurgence. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm glad to see it, and it'll be fun to talk about them. And so uh, it's good to see again. IEW uh, just enjoying the the background, the plethora of, of Star Trek comments for them to be yeah. able to kind of get the rights to and be able to, to give back to Star Trek fans. Most definitely. Well, those are all of the actual news items that we have here to close out the year. But uh, before we get into the interview in the feature, we do have one more thing to talk about. And that's ongoing number 28 and uh, this did just come out this week. And Matthew, we've both read it. And I was really happy to be able to end the year with the conclusion of the Kittimer conflict. And once again, I mean, we've talked about how much we like this story. And I have to say that overall, I think it was a good conclusion. What did you think about it? Yeah, Chris, I have to agree with you. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it starts off in a really interesting spot where... Uh, a Vulcan is, is talking to Yuki, and um, and I, I thought that was really a great way to start because at first I was scratching my head. I was like, oh, my goodness, what is this? And then you realize she's talking to her roommate at the academy, and as they're talking, the red matter destroys Vulcan. And right. so you can understand the reason why she has this desire to join Section 31. She has this deep-seated anger at, at – uh, you know the the people who have attacked the federation and um and and this is why she joins um them and 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 you know it's so interesting because it puts her at odds definitely with Hikaru who who is asked to join section 31 and turn them down and um kind of seeing what drives people you know it's only a couple of page a scene but it's effective enough to make this character really come alive and make her choice here to to be a part of Section 131, something that makes more sense. Yeah, I agree. It's it's the first two pages of the comic, and I'm glad that they did it just because I know personally myself as a reader, I needed this justification to know why she decided to be part of Section 31, why she has the, at least I assume she has animosity towards the Romulans, as well as the Klingons, but especially the Romulans, and and why they brought her in in the first place. So this was an important start to the story, I think, to help the rest of the story uh, make sense to me and for me to be able to buy into it. So uh, before we go any further, we'll give you a spoiler alert because we are going to talk about some things that happen here in the comic, although this isn't going to be an in-depth review. Uh, so after those scenes happen... We cut back to where we ended with part three, where we have Yuki Sulu there on Kronos holding the phasers, pointing a phaser at her brother. Yeah, and and, um, the Romulans beam down and they have the last bit of red matter energy, which they say they're going to use to destroy the capital of um, 
of Kronos, and and they realize obviously they're not going to destroy the entire planet like they were able to do was able to happen with Vulcan. They're going to destroy enough of of um you know the planet on on Kronos that it, it's it's going to be a big deal. Um, and which I think is a terrible idea, though. Don't you agree? And this is kind of the thing that that Kirk points out to them that all you're going to do is make the Klingons angrier. And make them come after you. I, I think that what Nero did to Vulcan, I mean, that was significant because he destroyed the entire planet and there were very few Vulcans remaining. Plus, the Vulcans were not an aggressive species like the Klingons to start with. But, you know, mm. the Klingons have other territories here. You're not going to be killing. You're only, get, you're only going to be killing a small fraction. It would be like here on Earth if you were to destroy New York City. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to kill a lot of people, but... All you're going to do is cause the United States to retaliate against you. And, and I think that this plan that the Romulans in Section 31 have here is extremely short-sighted. Well, and what's so interesting is that uh, that, that gets pointed out by Kirk. Mm-hmm. And then Section 31 shows up and basically does a turnaround. Um, they show up in this you know fancy ship of theirs. Uh, they come out of nowhere. Uh, the Romulans aren't happy about it. Section 31 basically takes over the entire operation because they are able to destroy all of the the Romulan ships because they were the ones who supplied the Romulans with the technology to build those ships, and they planted a virus in them so they could destroy them. Um, and they're the ones who end up with the red matter, and they also end up not destroying Kronos so it's pretty scary that this Section 31 has the red matter in their hands. They have these really advanced starships, and who knows how that's going to turn out later on down the line. Right. You don't know for sure what's going to happen. Speaking of their ship, isn't this like like the Stargazer on steroids in the Abrams verse? Yes, it is. It does look like the Stargazer in stories. In fact, I wonder if that was the maybe the the um, design idea behind yeah. it was because it, it feels really like does, it may have been. Yeah, it does look like the Stargazer, which is interesting. And well, I mean, it looks like the Stargazer and the Vengeance put together because if well, you look real closely on that big page, the the it has the the kind of open area inside the saucer. Right. Yeah. It has this very strange saucer section. So, yeah, it, it's a cool-looking thing. I mean, it's a cool-looking yeah. ship. When Into Darkness was just coming out, I saw the Vengeance referred to as the ring ship in in some places because of huh. the way the saucer section has that, yeah. that opening in the, in the center. So, Well, you know, you say you're not sure how this is going to turn out with the fact that Section 31 has the red matter. But the the thing is here, too, and... This became it became very transparent to me. It's very true. What what the story is saying here is very true. I think I might have wanted to see a little bit less transparent spin put on it, but they go directly into equating the red matter with nuclear weapons. Yeah. Which it's purely a deterrent. You know, it's pointed out to them that having the having the red matter in your possession as a deterrent to the Klingons is more powerful than actually using it. And it's pretty Mm -hmm. much exactly the case. Of course, here on Earth, we did use atomic weapons one time in war and everyone saw what happened and everyone said, okay, we can't 
do that again. That's that's that has to be off the table. But if you push us far enough, we will. And so it becomes a deterrent. And that's pretty much exactly what's going on here with the red matter. And so this is really setting up like a Cold War scenario yes, between the Romulans and the Klingons and the Federation. Right. Well, and with the Klingon fleet being really crippled, the Romulan fleet also being crippled, the Federation is in a much stronger position at the moment um, and I, I like that, uh, the, where the comic ends, you know, the Kirk talking about this idea of, you know, with all this uncertainty and in a fear, it, it's even more important that the enterprise continue on this uh, original mission that she'd been given before this started, which was the five-year mission of boldly going where, where no one has gone before. And, and, um, I, this really sets up, um, a great opportunity then for, the ongoing comics to start doing that and 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 at the same time they have a lot of mythology that they've created for their yeah. uh comic to, to be able to play with when they want to so um, i'm very excited to uh to yeah. see where this goes in 2014 the question is are they really going on the five-year mission now because you know they keep stalling they keep saying we're going to go on the mission at the end of into darkness they said they're going to go on the mission they keep saying they're going to go and here like you say on this last page the enterprise warps away (laughs) and they're going to go on the mission but i don't know i'm not going to believe them until i actually see them doing a real (laughs) five-year mission bit in the comic i'm with you because we know in the next one we're going to get jane kirk right that is true so it'll be interesting to see how they run into her yeah so we'll see. But overall, um, this was another, it was a good issue. Artwork was really well done again. Uh, very cool scene of all the Romulan ships exploding as the Enterprise yes. and the Section 31 yes, ship. Yes, I love that. Yeah. And the overall series, Kittimer Conflict here, I, I give it a really high rating. I mean, I give it maybe, you know, like nine out of 10 unexpectedly deceptive sisters. Oh my goodness. Wow. Um, yeah, ah, wow. I hadn't even thought of a rating, Chris, but if I were to rate this, um, I'd probably have to go with, uh, seven and a half out of 10 ass kicking Zara's. (laughs) That's a great rating. Yeah. I like that too. So it's a really good series. If you haven't read it yet, I definitely recommend picking it up and, you know, you might want to hold off picking up the individual ones just because it is the kind of thing where I would expect sometime, what do you think, Matthew, maybe first quarter, there's no announcement yet, but maybe first quarter of the year, they'll probably do an omnibus of this. You know, uh, I think, yeah, this should be coming out soon. In fact, I think if I was, if I remember looking at actually uh, volume seven, Chris, of um, the ongoing comic is going to be coming out uh, soon. It looks like it's going to be a March solicitation, I think, okay. uh, here, according to Trek Collective. So that is conflict. exciting. Yeah, if you can yeah. wait, you know, maybe you might want to. But, you know, honestly, I'd say don't wait. Just go pick up the issues. They're fantastic. Uh, use those gift cards you get and, and pick this up. You won't be sorry. Yeah. And if you're trying to decide between, let's say, the Star Trek annual, the John Byrne photo comic that we talked about last week, and Kittlewood Conflict, I recommend picking up Kittlewood Conflict with those gift cards. 
Well, that is everything that we have in news and our comic discussion, Matthew. So it's time to jump into the feature with James. But before we do that, let's tell everyone about our sponsor for this week's show, Squarespace. Squarespace is the best hosting in CMS. It makes it really simple for you to create your own blog, website, portfolio, or online store. And there are several things that I love about Squarespace. And one of them, of course, is that it's very design focused because I am a designer and I really care about aesthetics. And, but, but at the same time, you know, if I have information I want to get out there, I want to just get it on the web. I don't want to put all my time into the design process and the coding because I need to be writing the content or like your Trek FM, Trek FM is built on Squarespace, by the way, we need to produce the podcasts. We have to record, we have to edit. We want to push that stuff out to all of you guys. So we don't want to spend our time coding the website. So Squarespace's design focus makes that really, really easy. And also, there are the connected accounts, Matthew, where you can push your content out there to Twitter, to Facebook, to places like that. What's your favorite social media channel, Matthew, for if you're if you're like me, you don't really go out looking for content on the web as much as you just wait for people to push it to you? You know, um, I really like Twitter for that, um, Chris, I, and, and that's what I use for, for my own blog as well. I, I find Twitter works really well, but at the same time, um, you know, it, I think the main ones for me are Twitter and Facebook, and, and they they really seem to be the best ones um, for kind of getting people to my site. Um, and uh, I, I love the ease of, of use of Squarespace and being able to push to those very easily. And, and I think that's great um, because those are great. Uh, like you said, I so many times I find a news article because I'm looking at the Twitter feed, not just because I'm going and perusing websites. Exactly. And of course, responsive design is really important because I read things on my desktop and I have large displays on the desktop, but I also read on my iPad. I read on my iPhone. The screen sizes are very, very different. And I I know that as a designer, it's really tedious to create multiple versions of a website so that it looks great on both platforms. And with Squarespace, you don't have to do that. You just do the site one time and it's going to reflow and it's going to look fantastic no matter what the screen size or orientation is. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the nice things about uh, Squarespace is that it's so easy to do. You don't have to be tech savvy. If you're like me, you're not. And this really gives you the ability to take that, put it out there and and not have to worry about that kind of stuff. And I love that. Because uh, I don't want to have to spend all my time trying to figure out how to make the website. I just want to be able to put my content out there. Exactly. And also, if you want to sell products, if you're a crafter, even if you're a big business, if you want to sell physical or digital products online, it can be sort of difficult to get that set up. You know, you have to go and, and set up a store infrastructure. You have to be able to process credit cards and uh, if you're a business, for example, and you have to have corporate PayPal, that there are a lot of hoops to jump through to set that up because I've done it before for my own business. But with Squarespace, they've integrated Stripe into the platform. And so as a Squarespace customer, you get 30-second merchant sign-up. You get instant approval, no paperwork to do. And in a matter of minutes, you can begin receiving money for purchases via direct deposit. Full tax and shipping rules by region are handled by Stripe, by the platform. And this is available in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, Belgium, France, Germany, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Spain right now. And that list of countries is going to be expanding in the future. So it's a, a really, really easy way for you to accept credit cards online, to sell your products. You can even print your 
shipping labels, packing slips through the interface there. You can send customer update emails. You can track outstanding orders. You can even move your existing Shopify or Big Cartel inventory over to Squarespace with just a few clicks. So blog, online store, uh, site for your personal writing, your fiction, you can do it all with Squarespace. And the best way to find out how easy it is, is to try it free for 14 days. There's no credit card required. Just go enter your name and your email address. And in a matter of minutes, you will be creating a beautiful website using the exceptional tools at Squarespace. Plans start at just $8 per month. You can get unlimited everything for $16. And if you want the commerce feature, that's just $24 per month. And as a Trek FM listener, you can save 10% off your purchase by using offer code TREK12. And doing so helps us bring literary tricks to you every week. So it's a great way for you to get a great website and help us at the same time. So just go to squarespace.com to try it for free. Remember to choose the annual plan and you'll get a custom domain registration for free as well. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of literary tricks and the network. We've got James Swallow with us tonight to be talking about his newest novel, The Poison Chalice, which is the fourth of five novels uh, making up the fall miniseries. And as we all know, centers around the Federation, the Typhon Pact, and the shenanigans that have been going on with them for quite a while now. And this series really wrapping up a big segment of the 24th century for us. And this book focuses really on the characters from the Titan, although there are other characters from uh, other series uh, in the mix, as there have been in all the books. And so, James, first, welcome to back to the show. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for having me on again and giving me an opportunity to just uh, talk about Star Trek. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, love. I love getting to talk to the authors. It's so much fun. I have got to say, um, and and I don't want to disparage anything else anybody else has done. Um, throughout uh, the year in Star Trek Lit, but I have to say I think that the fall was what I was looking for the most all, all year, and I, I there has not been a disappointment in the mix. Um, you guys, I feel like, pulled out all the stops and have made an incredible series, and I just I can't wait now till Dayton wraps it up uh, in a couple weeks for us. So I, I I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, th- I think. Um... I think we all we we all, we we done pretty good, didn't we? I mean, I think we we all really raised our game. We've we've we we came into this, and I think brought our A game. Oh, definitely. I, I think this is the A plus game. So, uh, <laughs> which was which was fantastic for all the the readers, and and I think just um, in general, you know, we had had all of the the TOS novels at the beginning of the year, and uh, just really chomping at the bit for that twenty fourth century um, because it had been gone for so long you know we were waiting so long and it's great to have it back and and then the way that you guys like you said just raised your game uh, and really brought it um it, it really shows in this series so I'm, I'm glad to see that thanks a lot i mean and i can certainly say you know having read peaceable kingdoms quite a while ago um dayton brings the thunder at the end believe me it's pretty cool oh man i i can't wait well okay so you've got the fourth book in the series and um, tell me just about, you know, the, the genesis for you of your story with the Titan. I mean, you've written for the Titan before and you even got to use some of your story pieces. But, you know, tell me about, you know, what that's like to try and write the fourth book in a series. So it's not all your idea and and how all that went down for you. 
Well, I've I've done series stuff before, you know, um, mostly uh, when I've been writing for audio dramas. For I did, I did it with the Doctor Who series this year. For uh, we had a, a thing for the 50th anniversary. We mm-hmm. did like uh, 12 different CD releases. Each one of us took a different Doctor, and I did one for that. We had an ongoing storyline there. Not quite as uh, intensive a story as we had with The Fall. And I've done it with uh, the Stargate audio series and also okay. with the um, the Horus Heresy novels, which is an ongoing Warhammer right. 40,000 thing. But this is probably the most tightly plotted thing I've ever worked on as a team player. And it was it was challenging, you know, in, in good and bad ways. Um, you know, because you looked at the, the, the documentation. I know that you, when you interviewed Dave Mack, he talked about the the spreadsheet, you know, which was all his creation, which was a... Uh, 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 it, that was our touchstone all through the entire project. You know, you look at that and thinking, man, I've got to fit my storyline in here, and you've got this many days, and you know, all the kind of questions of logistics about simple things about like how long does it take to travel from there to here? Can I do that? You know, things like just asking yourself the question: Does is this is this character in the same room as these guys? Is is he on the other side of the galaxy? How do I have a conversation between these two people because I need that to happen dramatically? All those all those things were a very interesting challenge. But I think we all kind of relished it, and uh, you know, we we all got got our hands on it and just said, okay, you know, we're going to take this plot line, pull it to pieces, and and do something really, really cool. And that was that was how we started. You know, we had the the initial uh, concept. I mean, obviously, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read it, but I'm sure we're going to talk in great depth about all these sort of things. Is um, Margaret Clark came to us and said, okay, uh, sorry, not Margaret. Um, yeah, um, and she came to us and she said, um you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have this assassination. We're going to have this kind of shot heard around the galaxy moment in, in the novels. And then that's where we're going to pick up and carry on. And it was, you know, it was very dramatic. And it's like, well, how do we take this and, and spread it out over five books and not make it feel like, you know, we're padding it. And how do we kind of create enough pitch and moment and, and momentum? And it turned out that we had more than we needed to, to divide this story up into all these different elements. And so, um, when it came to my turn, it was it was kind of a a bit of it was scheduling and a bit of it was just kind of personal choice. But Titan was offered to me, and I had such uh, a lot of fun writing the Titan crew for for Synthesis. I was looking for an opportunity to go back and and tell another story with them, and so um, it was interesting to do this because it's it's very much a, a lot of people were saying to me, "Is this going to be a traditional Titan novel? You know, is it about the kind of right. strange new worlds, the, the the exploratory nature of of Titan?" And it and it really it really isn't. But it, it's it's a fall novel before it's a Titan novel, because you know the the Titan series to me has always always been kind of like a classic Trek sensibility in a TNG era exactly. world. Where, whereas this is much more this is a political thriller. That is what this novel is about, and you know you you'll see the Titan characters that you like behaving in a different way and being exposed to a different style of problem. And I thought that was interesting because you know we're going to get more Titan novels in the future, and those Titan novels will be your traditional Titan novel. Here's a chance to kind of take them out of their comfort zone. Um, and, you know, that's the uh, that's the whole kind of theme behind it. In fact, if anything, that could be the alternative title for this novel, you know, out of your comfort zone, because pretty much everybody in this story is dragged into a situation they don't want, want to be in. And that's kind of where the, the title, The Poison Chalice, mm-hmm. originally came from, is the idea that, you know, Riker is given this promotion, mm-hmm. which uh, on paper sounds like a really great idea, but it's a poison chalice. You know, it, it turns out that, it's not what he thought it was. And in fact, you know, he's being dragged into something that he doesn't want to be involved in. And it all starts to go horribly wrong. And he's trying to kind of, you know, run ahead of the avalanche to try and sort out this situation and not get crushed underneath the the weight of it. And so 
putting all of that together um, with with these characters, and yeah, Riker's always been um, one of my favourite characters, so it was a joy to get a chance to to write him some more, and uh, and picking up the, the the threads that had been laid down by the other guys, and and trying to do something interesting with that. That was a that was an interesting challenge as well. And of course, because I'm four or five, I had to make sure that I could tell enough story to make my book interesting, but not too much, because. I have to leave some cool stuff for Dayton to do. And right. so he comes in and he picks up the threads that I leave hanging and he has his, his own cool stuff. And, you know, he has the, the, the job of kind of bringing it all to a kind of crashing conclusion, which he does ably, I have to say. And um, that, was, that was fun for me to, to I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like raising the curtain on the finale at the end of this novel. And so uh, if anything, he and I, were the ones who I think we worked the closest together to try and synchronize everything that we were doing. So it's, I think it was it, you know, McCormack said that it's like a relay race is it pretty yeah. much was narratively passing the baton from one, one writer to another. And it really, really is that. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because we all have very, very different styles from each other. You know, Yuna's style is not like mine. Date neither is Dayton's or David Mack or, or David R. George. You know, we all take a completely different approach to the way we write stories. But in a way, I think that's really made the fall uh, stronger because you know the, the the differences in the way that we write and the differences in the approaches we have behind our writing have uh, have combined to create a really interesting sort of cocktail. And underneath it, all, we've got this strong, compelling storyline which is just now racing towards a conclusion. Well, I have to say that, you know, your connection with with David's book before you, I think, worked out smoothly and and, and really well done because I, I didn't feel any kind of jarring or, or a real noticeable difference in the sense that the, the way that David was able to finish his story, um, David Mack, that is, was finished his story, and, and, and then you moved into yours, it felt very seamless because, you know, he ends with Titan being recalled and you pick right up where he left off and it, and it it was just it was perfect you know i felt like there was an ending to his story but then i knew something else was coming and i i really do feel that you know there's a conclusion to what happened in your book but i know dayton is just going to take that and pick that right back up and and so it, it it's it's been so well done and for me has being somebody who's read a lot of tie in fiction um through a lot of different universes the way that this multi-book, um, multi-authored series has been done has has almost been flawless, um, which is really very rare to be able to say. So, just a kudos to you guys for really, you know, stepping up. And and I think, you know, you talking about David making the big, huge flow chart for you guys. It paid off beautifully. Um, because I don't feel like there's any kind of jarring, even though you guys do have different styles in the way you write, and it's made these wonderful um, collection of books that um, each has their own individual style to them. The storyline itself feels very fluid, and that's fantastic. Mm. I mean, it's you know sometimes with a mini series like this, you'll have somebody who kind of takes almost a supervisory role, and uh, you know will just sort of lead the concept through. Uh, we didn't have that. I think we we all just kind of we all clicked really well because I think we all understand each other's work. We all respect each other's work, and we all just understood this is the needs of this particular narrative, and we all know what our strengths are. So we were all like, okay, well, let's all play to our strengths. Let's do all of us do what we do well, and we we were lucky enough that we kind of created uh, a five book arena for us, you know, to kind of play to our strengths, and 
because we talked a lot, I mean, in, uh, certainly in the initial phases, we were just sending back, you know, reams and reams of emails about how are we going to do this? Who is this character? What does this guy look like? What's his name? How does he dress? You know, and we were passing backwards and forwards, lots of different character notes. And so I think in a very real way, every other writer to a lesser or greater degree has a hand in every other book. And that definitely pays off because we all feel like we had a stake in it. You know, it's although I mean, we're trying to kind of honestly, let's be honest, we're writers, we're trying to one up each other. So we want to do something cool (laughs) that you're going to go, wow, you know, you like this book and I'm going to do this cool thing. But at the same time as well, I think we were all really invested in seeing everybody else's books be as good as they possibly could be. And uh, and I think it really paid off at the end. And I was just pleased that, you know, and like I said, I was just pleased to get my hands back on the Titan crew again, you know, because I enjoyed writing them. And and I like I always like taking characters from their their sort of normal positions and, and the, the the kind of things that you know you, you expect to see them doing and putting them in a situation where you know the unexpected is happening and then just say okay now get out of that and and that was um that was the way that 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 poison chalice came together and it was an opportunity for me to do that with right to kind of meld that with a, a kind of action thriller espionage kind of story that um you know in the end it, it just seemed to hit all the right marks and I think it comes at the right place as well because, you know, I'm, as I'm saying, I'm raising the curtain before the end of the story. So I felt like this needed to be a story that was fast moving, that had a lot of, you know, action and a lot of pace to it. Because the last thing you want is it to kind of slow down before we reach that kind of final conclusion. Well, and that's tough. I mean, you know, when you're writing the penultimate book in a series, often that kind of feels like that happens because really what people are wanting is the end. But I, 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 reading through the series, it does feel like I get enough of the answers and a little bit of the conclusion. So I know what the end game is, but I feel satisfied enough where you left us. And and that is definitely a hard thing to do. So I'm glad um, that you, you got a chance to get back to Titan. I enjoyed synthesis a lot and um, having, I think, you know, I think having Riker in this position really works with that kind of action adventure, political intrigue, uh, it strangely works well. I mean, Riker is a character. I think that um, I think Akar picked a perfect person to bring back. You know, he even says in the book, "This is why it's not Picard or Cisco or somebody else. It's you." Um, and uh, I think Riker has just enough of that Kirk in him to make this really work. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's I feel that that that's totally where he's coming from. Is because. You know, when when a car won't even level with him, and he's he's basically going, okay, well, look, you know, you're not going to tell me what the problem is. Fine, I'll go and find out myself. And when he finally has that conversation where he levels with him, he's like, well, I've already started work on this. Actually, you know, I got sick of waiting for you to tell me what was going on, so I've already found out some of the answers myself because that's who I am. You know, Riker's the you know the full Riker. You know, when you when you see him walk across the bridge and he puts his shoulder forward and off he goes, that's Will Riker. You know, <laughs> puts and, his and, leg and, up on something. Yeah, you know, and and that's what and that's what he's doing. And I see him. That's his. I've always seen Riker having that attitude towards life. He's like, here is a problem. Well, you know what. I'm going to I'm going to take this head on and and I'm going to try and solve it and I'm going to you know if I have to kind of bull my way through it I'll do that and but if I can find a way to think my way through that you know and uh, use his instincts to, to to get through a situation that's exactly what he's going to do and I've always felt that that's Riker's strength is that he does have a little of the Kirk Kirkian sort of flavor to him as well but at the same time he's he's kind of a he's a well-rounded character in a different way from Kirk because of especially in in the later novels now the way he's you know he's developing into a father and and a husband 
and he has uh, different um, different priorities. And suddenly, in amongst all of that, he's like promoted to admiral, which is traditionally kind of almost in the Star Trek universe, like that's the death of your career, because after you become an admiral, all right. you get to do is kind of mess around with captains, and and or, or occasionally go crazy or get possessed by aliens or something, you know. From, I even made a chat where, you know, he's talking to one of the crew members and he says, like, look, every time you get promoted to an admiral, it doesn't automatically mean that you lose your marbles. And, and the guy's like, well, you know, the day is young, sir. We'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, I loved that it, because, you know, we have rarely seen somebody be an admiral. I think I think except for Admiral Ross in DS9, he's the only one that you respected, really, when he came on screen. Um, and mainly because he had that relationship with Cisco and, and Cisco respected him. Mm-hmm. And he's very. There's very very few admirals, and of course, when Kirk was an admiral, we we all loved him. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting because I think Riker and um, Cisco, and and maybe even a little bit Janeway, they're the the captains we know from the 24th century that I think could probably make it in the 23rd century, where you have all that autonomy, um, and you know you you can really think for yourself and you trust their decisions to make. Um, and so I really appreciate you know Riker being thrown in this position and having to put to use all that he's learned from Picard and everything else in his career to make the right decisions here um it it reminded me a lot this book reminded me a lot of um in the pale moonlight with the discussions that Cisco has to have and when he has what he has to do to get there and I, I feel like Riker really has to go down that road and he has that moment himself in this book of doing things he doesn't necessarily believe are right, but he's doing them for the right reasons. Um, and, and that's such an interesting discussion to be having throughout this whole entire book. I mean, there, there was actually um, something I wanted to put in there. And in the end, I didn't find a convenient place to, to illustrate is I wanted to have him think about Eric Pressman, you know, mm. as, uh, mm-hmm. as an, a guy who was a commanding officer of his who became an admiral. And in the end, I, I couldn't fight. It just kind of felt like I was repeating the same kind of stuff I'd already said. And I thought, I don't want to draw attention away from, from Will. But that was very much in my mind is the idea of I knew he would be thinking about that guy, that he would be thinking about Pressman and Leighton and, and, you know, every other admiral on Star Trek who's kind of let the, let the power go to their head a little bit. And he's asking himself this question, you know, maybe that's the way that those guys started off is in the situation I'm in right now is, is, you know, okay, I have a thing to do here and I've got more power and, you know, I, I can see the right choice. And so I'm going to do this stuff, but is that the road to ruin? You know, and he, in the back of his head, he's, he's thinking about all of that while he's trying to deal with this situation that's kind of crashing down around him at the same time. Well, and then because of that, I mean, so throughout the series, I, I feel like reading it, I've kind of walked through the 20th century um, and our wars and in our cold wars and you know our most recent wars and so we finally got into your book and every book has had a bit of real world influence what were some of yours for this book because there are quite a lot especially for today's world well you know i mean definitely the cold war is a a very strong influence on this i mean i'm you know i'm a child of the 1980s I grew up with the, you know, the threat of nuclear Armageddon hanging over my head. And it's something I've been thinking about very recently, actually, because um, here in the UK, the BBC have just had a, a Cold War um, season on one of their channels, uh, broadcasting documentaries about about that era. And watching a lot of that stuff, again, kind of really reminded me of, of, of influences on this book that I wasn't even aware of actually putting in there about the, you know, the nature of of the sort of the, the, the politics and, and the, this, this sort of like, 
slow burn of espionage that's going on and people making decisions that are morally questionable that are being swept under the carpet while you know the the whole bread and circuses thing is going on and people's attention are being drawn away from one thing while something really bad is happening and sadly it's a truth that that kind of stuff still happens today and and there definitely is um connective matter to you know more current political events you know, the 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 story deals with you know uh black sites and rendition and and the idea of unsanctioned executive actions and those are all things that we've seen uh in in contemporary politics unfortunately they're also things that you can trace back to the past as well you know it's not just a kind of you know a, a right. two, year 2000s or 2010s kind of thing you know this has been happening for ages and it was interesting to me actually i saw a comment online where um somebody was uh, mentioning that and saying how you know they felt like the some of the stuff I was saying was very much like a thinly veiled allegory of, of real world events. And they were talking about American politics. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I'm not an American. And a lot of, uh, a lot of British politics is kind of percolating up through that as well, because we've had our own issues about, you know, um, the legality of going to war and, and rendition, ha- rendition happening in this country. In fact, um, where I live is quite close to uh, a small commercial um, airstrip. And uh, I can remember when the whole rendition thing blew up is it turned out that they were using that airstrip to, to render guys, uh, you know, aircraft were stopping there flying over my house, carrying illegally rendered prisoners, you know, and I'm seeing that in my local newspaper, not even like the big major news sources, but in the little freebie newspaper I get through my letterbox every week. And I'm thinking this is really kind of coming home to roost. And that really stuck with me. The idea of, of, of these things going on, of, of, you know, the secret decisions being made in the corridors of power. And that's not something that we see in Star Trek. And it intrigued me to to be able to write a story where we could bring that to light. Because the thing about the Star Trek universe is, is that everybody, they certainly say that they're trying to, that, you know, they're trying to aspire for the very, very best in, in terms of their society and their culture and their politics. And while they reach for that every time, there is always the possibility that you'll fall short. And and the the drama, the the dynamics of it comes in the kind of the gap between what you aim for and where you actually land. And I, I like the idea of that. And I think this is the, the 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 Star Trek universe that we have in the books right now. You know, coming coming back from the 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 Borg invasion and from all of the situations that have spun out of that. This is a this is a Federation kind of like trying to get back on the upswing now. You know, dealing with the Typhon Pact. And all these other threats to its to its existence, you know, it's a it's a federation that's completely unlike the ones that we've seen in the TV shows, and I think the books really reflect that. Is that it's a federation where people feel embattled. You know, there's an entire generation of people coming up in Starfleet, and and they're people who've lived through the war with the Borg, and you know, and young people who are now kind of like joining Starfleet, and they have different ideas about the way that Starfleet should be, and maybe they're coming at it from a more militant, more aggressive standpoint, which is not what Starfleet's about. Or, or is it what Starfleet's about now? You know, and it's the, the dynamic tension between these two sort of like worldviews. You know, if, you, if you end up being too quick to reach for your sword, eventually that's the first thing you do in every situation. And that's not Star Trek. Right. But, but it's reflecting what feels to me a realistic evolution of that culture and society and the, you know, and the trying to find its way back to, to what their true ideals are. This is, this is very definitely a story about that. This is our characters and, and in a larger sense, the Federation being confronted with two paths, you know, do you want to hawk or dove? Which way do you want to go? 
even I uh, even had uh, a Riker set where he talks about you know there's the possibility of kind of backsliding towards the sort of Cold War era of like Kirk's era you know the, the 23rd century of the Cold War with the Klingons and you know we don't want to go back there you know, but there's a possibility that that's where we may slide back to because you know once you've been knocked down a few times you start to think that everybody you see is somebody who's going to knock you down again and that's the that's to me is an interesting situation how do you get past that how as a culture does the federation pick itself up and say okay you know we will not forget what we are and and what we want to be i think that's that's something that you know reading through this book i feel like it is such a progression from where ds9 ended and just this whole series that you know tng did a great job of laying out you know the ideals of the federation and what the 24th century wanted to be and then deep space nine took those lofty ideals and said okay now you need to live in a universe that doesn't really share those ideals um and and how does that play out especially when it comes to the ideas of war and all these other things that we hadn't seen before and the the book series have done a great job i think of just taking that and and pushing it forward you know um, as things like the Borg have happened now and, and the Typhon Pack and all of that, putting it together, what happens to a society, as you said, you know, you've had 10, 20 years of people being raised in a completely different climate than, say, when, you know, Picard first stepped on the Enterprise D and they were boldly going. It's a whole new world, um, and, and it looks very different. And, you know, Riker talking about this idea of, of trying to get back to hope um, is, I think, the the key to this whole series is, okay, there are these divergent paths, like you said, you, you can go down um, this evil type of political road that's going to lead you into just chaos, or you can take the road that we all really want to be on is, you know, we're going to do the right thing for the right reasons, no matter how hard it is. And, and, and you know, there's those two divergent paths. I really love that, that se this series is really dealing with that because, you know, honestly, as you said, the world is dealing with these issues too. Um, and reading the, 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 this, this series has really helped me kind of think through a lot of those different things from the last, you know, 15 years of, of what's been going on in our own world. And, and that's really what... I think Star Trek does best and the fact that the writers have been able to pull that out for us all that are reading the series, it's it's exactly what Gene, I think, wanted, even if, you know, he might not love that the 24th century is in this predicament now. It's it's helping me and it's helping other readers, I think, think about our world and what, what where do we want to go? Well, that's definitely, I mean, you know, certainly Star Trek's always been good at doing that thing that, start, that science fiction is very good with, which is holding up the funhouse mirror to the real world, you know, because the, you can't, you know, you can't, talk, you can't talk about racism, so you have a story about the planet of the half-black, half-white people, you know, and you can't, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't talk about the Vietnam War, so you have, you know, you have Yangs and Combs and stuff like that, you know, and it's, that, it, it sounds a little crude to us now, but that is one of the strengths of science fiction is it can ask you questions that are difficult because you because you can take it one step removed you go okay we're not we know we're talking about people in the future or we're talking about people on different planets so you can step back from that and ask yourself well you know this isn't my world so i can i can look at it in a more dispassionate sort of way so i think star trek works 
works with that very well. It's certainly, you know, we are looking at a, a generation in the current era of the of the novels. It's a post-war generation, if you think of it in that sense. You know, and, and I look at uh, my family, who, you know, who are coming out after the, the Second World War. It's like, you know, what was life like for people growing up in that post-war generation? It's a very different experience in Europe than it was for the experience of um, uh, Americans growing oh, up. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, when, when, when you, you know, you, you've got the, the austerity and you've got the kind of, you know, you've got the rubble of war still kind of all around you. You know, people still literally still living in the ashes of the Second World War and trying to rebuild their lives, dealing with all of that. And it's you know it's and it's very hard for you to sort of say well you know I want to reach for I want to reach for hope because you're just trying to kind of make sure that you know y- your house is going to stay up you nobody should now but they were shooting at you yesterday and they might be shooting at you tomorrow so you know how are you gonna how are you gonna deal with that and I think that sort of mindset the idea of, of a post-war Star Trek generation that's all bubbling away in the background you know we don't really see that in our lead characters in the story, but I wanted to kind of set that up as almost as if that's, that's the, that's the audience. That's the world that's passing by in the background while our heroes are having their adventures is that there's this, this is the transition that's happening. And, and, and so we are at that point of the junction between these two paths is that we can go down a sort of darker route where people's hearts will harden a little more because of the experiences they've gone through, or will they remember to, you know, to still keep the things that are true and strong and, and good and, and try and hope for the very, very best. And, and that's illustrated with uh, the political situation where, you know, it literally is the, you know, the hawks versus the doves. And, you know, and do you have to become a little bit of, in order to beat them? And again, it's going back to um, a, a very, it's a very deep space nine thing. You know, the, the issue that Cisco deals with, um, you know, with the, with Garrick helping him to bring the Romulans into the Dominion War. Definitely. You know, it's it's that's a it's a that goes to a very dark place for Star Trek, but it feels very real and it feels very true. And I think that there's definitely a situation like that going on in the fall, where you know there's this uh, this evolution from an assassination to the discovery of what appears to be a murder plot, but then there's like layer upon layer of of what's actually going on and who's responsible and you know who caused this to happen, who aided and abetted. How do you apportion responsibility for this crime? Is it the guy who pulled the trigger, or is it the guy who paid the guy who pulled the trigger? And you know, and you, you, it, you, we start to unpack the truth behind the Baco assassination, and it just becomes more and more ugly the deeper you go. And I think Riker certainly has that moment where he's—it's like he's feeling—I I don't know if I want to look any deeper. His, how much of this is going to change me? And then you know, he's looking over his shoulder at his family and his friends and saying, "Well, I have to do it for those people." And so maybe, you know, truth needs a soldier in this story. And, and, that's, and that's pretty much, you know, Riker and, and to a lesser extent, um, Nog and, and Vale and, and Tuvok all kind of fulfill that sort of role. Well, and, and, you know, Riker talks about that whole idea of pushing agendas based on fear instead of hope. And it, and it really, it, it rings so true. And what I really enjoyed that uh, Riker does, though, is he lays out where that hope is based. And it's based in the principles and the ideals of the Federation that have been there since the beginning. So it's not just some kind of nebulous idea of hope, but he has a real concrete idea of what they're working towards. And, you know, that's really the only way to combat fear with is with another principle, one that with, that's even better and more worthy to aspire to. Um, and and I, I love I, that you, you, know, you called him Truth Soldier. Uh, what a great name for Riker. Uh, we should work that into a future book or something. 
I think it's definitely you know that 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 is the whole idea of the you know the the grand ideal of the federation of it being a place where everybody is welcome, where you know that that everyone can have a voice, and that you know you we can move forward in unity and and achieve great things. You know that's what that's what the federation is. That's what the word means. And being challenged in this way to turn it into something darker, something that's more defensive. That's something like it cuts right to the very of, of, of certainly of, you know Riker and his oath, and and you know and the other Starfleet characters you know their oath is is to sort of you know as well as doing the whole kind of like you know boldly going and strange new world stuff it's also to kind of keep home and hearth safe, and they have to you know consider both of these things, and it's difficult to think about you know well let's go off and explore some distant part of the galaxy when well you know. Uh, is there a possibility that while I'm away, my home is going to be attacked? And, you know, should I stay closer to home? And then you start getting into defensive thinking and it's yeah. siege mentality. And before you know it, you know, you become inward looking. And that's what the, and the Federation, you know, the principles of the Federation are very much about, you know, the, the whole idea of this, you know, we're not just seeking answers to the questions that we have, but we're also seeking new questions. We can't lose that, that desire to see what's over the next hill, you know, that sense of wonder. And I think, those ideals all speak to that, and that's and that's Riker totally, um, you know, articulating that in that moment, saying, you know, this is who we are. Do not forget, this is who we are. This is where we came from. These were good ideas when they were first invented. They're still good ideas now, you know. And even if things have changed, there's still stuff that we can pull from this, you know, that we can we can use that will make us better people. And, uh, you know, I think he's, uh, he's a great character to articulate that sort of thing because I think Riker completely and wholly believes in the good of the Federation. He's not, uh, you know, he, he's, although he's lived through, um, dark times, I think he's still deep down inside, you know, he's, he's a hundred percent behind it, stands four square on, on that thing. And he doesn't want to let it go. He doesn't want to see it die off and become something darker. One of the things that uh, Carew says in the book, he says politics will always be a source of argument. Um, and, and uh, you know, in today's world, obviously, it's so true. I, I don't know if you have in, in uh, England there, um, but we do here on Netflix a show called House of Cards um, that they did. And it's this political maneuvering show, and it's just layer upon layer in each episode of all these people. And it feels like, you know, tri-dimensional chess on, on crack, but with politics. And that's what I really feel like this series is doing with the politics is just showing the layer upon layer of deception and, and, and control that somebody can exert through the political system, if not held to the law and how we can kind of bend and twist and, you know, contort things and, you know, turn what was good into evil and all that happening, you know, it, it drives you crazy. Um, because it's happening today, and there it seems to be not a ton that we can do about it. You know, it's funny you talk about House of Cards because um, you may not be aware that that was actually a British television series from the nineteen eighties. I was not. That's that's my uh, negligence and not looking that up. It was uh, originally uh, based on a novel written by a guy who was actually in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, and a lot of the story was was um, based as on true facts. I think there was. I think there were three three books, and and they made them into three TV miniseries here in the UK. Okay. And it was about it's basically about a guy who you know it's the same thing about you know he talks to the camera and he does that whole breaking the fourth wall sort of thing. Um, and it's this guy who basically manipulates his way into becoming the prime minister, 
through the various unpleasant shenanigans. And, uh, and yeah, that was something that I saw when I was younger and, um, that was definitely an influence on me. I think, you know, I know Una McCormack's a big fan of that series as well. And it was interesting to see, you know, the um, David Fincher and the guys from Netflix and, and Kevin Spacey taking that on and kind of reinventing <clears throat> that concept and transplanting it to America. Because, you know, it's like I just said earlier on, you know, these political ideas, the, these things aren't old. You know, this was happening in the 80s here in the UK. You know, you, you could say it's happening now in, in America and you could look back into the past and pick other cultures and say, well, you know, was, was this happening, you know, um, before the Second World War in Germany or is it happening in other countries like, you know, like in Japan or Korea or, or different parts of Europe? You can draw lines back from, sadly, you can draw back lines and showing that this kind of political behavior happens yeah. a lot. Well, and and it is interesting because... Um, you know, and I think that um, this idea that politics is always a source of argument is because politics is also the source of power in any system. And now that we've become quote unquote civilized, you know, that's where the power is. And so and and that's what man longs for in, in the end in, in so many ways is to have some sort of power and control over there you know, their domain and the way that we do that with other humans is, is through political systems. And so, um, there's always going to be those who, who want to take it and control it and contort it. And what, you know, I think is so interesting about this series too. None of these contortions of the Federation are happening through section 31, the kind of thing that we all, you know, um, look at in the Star Trek universe and, and we know they're, they're quote unquote bad. This is all just happening within the framework of uh, the Federation itself. Um, that's the, 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 and that's the scariest are always kind of like the, they're, the, they're always kind of like the boogeyman, on right. the, you know, the, the, way, the way they've been created in this sort of situation. I mean, I certainly think when, when Keru says about um, po uh, politics being, you know, the one thing that you can't have a civil conversation about, he is totally channeling me in that moment. Because <laughs> I, I, I really feel that's true. You know, what is it they say? The, the things that you should never talk about at dinner parties, you shouldn't talk about religion or sex or politics. Which we always end up talking about somehow at dinner yeah, parties. Yeah, and I, and I look at the Star Trek universe and I think, well, you know what? I think sex and politics... You could probably go. That that would probably be okay if you were in 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 the you know in the twenty third twenty fourth century having a conversation like about those things around the dining table. You could probably be okay. But politics, power politics, are still going to be a problem in the future. And I think that's definitely him uh, illustrating illustrating that right now. Because Kerry strikes me as he's very much a kind of like salt of the earth, meat and potatoes kind of guy. Doesn't really have time for all of that kind of filibustering. You know, he wants to kind of understand what the situation is he doesn't want someone to kind of tell him and give him spin so i think you know he's definitely he's the kind of the voice of that sort of person in this situation going i don't want to deal with all of that i just want to know what the hell is going on and why is this happening i want to be <laughs> yeah. able to make an you know i want to make an informed choice about the, the the people who are in charge of me and, and and the people that i may one day be in charge of i want to understand how the system works i don't want it to be obfuscated under under layers of, of you know spin and i think that's that's definitely one voice one sort of emotion that's going through these characters while all of this all of this circumstance is happening mm. james one of the things that I, I really enjoyed in the book too is is the end where tuvok and nog have the conversation about you know why they were chosen for the mission um and can you expound on that just a little bit more? Because I thought that that was just a really interesting part. And 
at the same time, I, I also was like, wow, really glad that those two were there because without them, if they hadn't been chosen, it would have ended completely differently, that mission. I mean, on, you know, on the one hand, obviously they're there because it's dramatically interesting and cool. And right. It's you know, it's a, it's a, it wouldn't have been a very interesting story if that ship had been full of characters that we didn't know. Um, I mean, the the when I was putting the storyline together, is I thought, well, you know, I want to have this kind of two tier story, is that, and it eventually evolved into kind of something larger than that. But my initial concept of it is, I want, I thought, I want Riker kind of Riker's doing the West Wing stuff, you know, he's he's walking up and down the corridors of power and he's trying to deal with the situation, but he's essentially tied to his desk and he can't get out of Starfleet Command, so he's trying to do the best he can from there. And so I needed another character who could go off and be doing stuff. You know, they're, they're kicking down doors and blowing things up. And I thought, well, you know, who have we got on Titan who's who's got an interesting background and then we've got this whole sort of organization, this this clandestine group going out and doing stuff. Tuvok immediately springs to mind because he's a guy who's, you know, who's done sort of special ops, black ops work and, and he has a kind of espionage background, but he's not like a Section 31 guy. And because he's Tuvok, you know, he is the consummate straight arrow which makes him a very interesting guy to put into the situation where he's doing very not straight arrow stuff where he's being called upon to do that. And I always thought that was an interesting thing about Tuvok being a guy who was basically when we first met him an undercover agent. How do you square that with being a Vulcan with, you know, with the idea of of trying to adhere to to truthfulness in as much as you possibly can and and logic. And so that was an interesting place to, to put him. And then I thought, you know, I want to bring in another character and I want to bring in somebody who has uh, a different tonality to them, someone who would bark off of Tuvok. And I thought I needed I needed someone who's kind of got a lighter touch on things, but still had a sort of uh, a kind of layer of darkness to him. And that's and that was Nog. And and I'd never written his character before. And I I kind of liked him on DS9. And I wanted the excuse to just basically steal a DS9 character and put it put him in there. So Nog definitely has the you know the the military background that we've seen in in DS9 and and he has kind of suffered for it but he also has a kind of you know he's got a lighter personality trait which which makes him fun to sort of like you know just put him side by side with Tuvok and they have a kind of cool double act going on but he also has an understanding of of the the realities of of warfare because he's been at the sharp end Yeah he he's he's got that and, and oh god, I hope I don't get in trouble with fans for saying this. He's got that lighter touch of Neelix with the darker side as well, and and so he he's a much more rounded character in in that he he works really well, I think, because he does kind of have this vengeful side that he talks about with with Tuvok there at the end, but at the same time he's he is kind of that um thoughtful, fun loving Ferengi who enjoys just figuring out technical problems the same way miles does and and, and he's got that um, you know fun side we saw with all the times when he'd hang out with with jake and and that kind of stuff so it does make for a great dynamic i, I like them working together and i hopefully and uh, to see them work together again sometime because it was fun they they i think they actually learned a lot from each other uh and made for a, a good pairing and like you said something you had never seen before um and it's always kind of neat when when random Star Trek characters get to get together for a good story point and not just, hey, let's throw this character and this character together just because it would be fun. It, I think it really helped the story. Yeah, I mean, there was there's uh, I think there's actually two first meetings by 
screen characters in in this book because I, I was you know I was writing that scene and as, as, I, as I was getting into it I suddenly thought oh wait have has anybody actually ever written a scene where you know Tuvok and Nog were in the same room together and had a conversation and so I had to go back and you know and delve through all the all the back history of Trek books looking to see if someone had ever done that story. And uh, and I couldn't find it, so I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I guess now probably someone's going to email me and go, oh, I did it in this comic book or something, <laughs> and, I, and I'll feel like a fool. But um, you know, I went on the assumption, okay, this is the first time these two guys meet. You know, these two guys from two different TV shows that, that have never crossed paths before. They're very, very different people from very, very different species, but they share that. You know, that they've both been soldiers, and and they've both also both been wounded by what it is that they did. But because they're very different people, it expresses themselves in very different ways. And at the heart, they also the other thing they share is they both believe in their Starfleet oath. They both they're both a good soldiers. And and again, they're placed like Riker is in in a untenable situation where eventually they you know what this is enough enough is enough we can't we can't keep doing this we're being called upon to to do things that none of us are comfortable with and you know that's it I'm not I'm not going this far and no further. And I think that's uh. That's an interesting place to put them in. Uh, the other, the other first meeting uh, is uh, Deanna Troy and, and Julian Bashir. Oh, that was great. Because again, I was looking at that and thinking, uh, have these two guys actually met? And I thought, oh, they haven't. And, and those are two, two very empathetic characters. And I thought, that's that's fun to put those guys in a room together and just have them have a conversation and see how that sparks off. Well, and it was so interesting because you know Julian being genetically enhanced you know he's able to control his emotions much more than normal humans and and deanna being the beta z putting those two together and and her you know not being able to read him as well as is you know she could normal people i thought that was just an interesting thing especially with what's going on in julian's life at this moment he's shutting himself down and, and hiding himself um because of the threats he's had you know against the people that he loves uh, I thought that that was really, really well done. Um, and I just have to say, God, do I love Vale and do I love the Andorians in this book? Like, I need more Andorians in Star Trek stories, not just for fight scenes. Um, and I need, um, I need, man, Vale was just fantastic. I wanted to reach through the page and kiss that woman for how awesome she was. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, you know, she's, I mean, uh, she's a, again, she's a fun character to write. I mean, a lot of people have different ideas about about who would play her in the movie. I always see her as Katie Sackoff. Oh gosh, yes. And 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 having uh, I, I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to to meet Katie at a, a Battlestar Galactica convention that a friend of mine was running, and and we hung out in the green room for a while and had a chat. And she's completely not like Starbuck at all in real life. She's a she's a very funny, very sort of bubbly person. Totally not kind of grim and hardcore like like Starbuck is and I can remember when I was saying the stuff about I kept thinking back okay I'm imagining Katie playing this and I'm imagining her doing her Star Trek thing and playing it in a different kind of way and she has that kind of lighter touch but she's still you know I, I still think of of, of Viola she's this, she's an ex-cop and she carries that she carries that cop swagger with her wherever she goes and so and that's how she sort of perceives the world around her that she has that that close eye on things but you know she's kind of cynical but a little cocky with it as well and and i really like that and and i and i thought again okay what am i going to do i'm going to take her out of her comfort zone and i'm going to put her in a situation that she's not 100% happy with that she thinks well maybe i can handle this i'm not quite sure the only way i'm going to find out is if i test myself 
and you know she's basically put in command of a starship and told go off and do this and she has her own kind of little subplot to deal with there where she's searching out Bashir to find out what happened to him after the end of um of Dave's novel and that was uh fun to take on Dave you know Dave puts him through the ringer poor Bashir poor Julian oh gosh no kidding and uh, and and of course I didn't want to you know I didn't want to go over that again I didn't want to you know you know Bashir's in the story and he plays an important role but he's not a main character and I didn't really want to kind of push him front and center and go okay he's been through the ringer once and here he goes again but there were important things that you know there are there are definite beats that need to be hit to make the story come together so you know we get to see a little bit of Esri Dax um, dealing with the situation that she's come out of and we get to see a little bit of Julian and they have kind of small spotlight moments but I think that they're in they're important turning points that, that the main narrative of the novel kind of uh, orbits around and it was fun to you know do this this another thing that's great about writing something like the fall is although it's ostensibly a titan novel I did get the opportunity to drag in characters from other shows and and do cool stuff with them I've you know I, I've never been able I've, I've written uh, my Tarek Noor novel was ostensibly a DS9 novel but it didn't really have many DS9 characters in it and so this was an opportunity for me to, to you know write a little Ezri and, and a little bit of Nog and a little bit of Bashir you know and that was all that was all good fun too yeah it's something that I think in in these stories has just been working really well how um, you know when you take the 24th century and you bring everybody closer to home you know you, they, they would start you know, interacting with each other, especially with the places that they're in, you know, a, a Riker, um, you know, being the kind of captain he is, the the um, the captain that Esri had become, uh, you know, obviously who Picard is in the Enterprise. And, and then, of course, you know, where Cisco is and, and the respect that people have for him. And you put all the these big events and, of course, they're going to be a part of it. And so I'm uh, definitely interested to see uh, just what Dayton does in the end and how he wraps it all up, you know, with Riker and Picard. And then, of course, you know, we still have some dangling threads there of, of uh, you know, what are they going to do with Esri and, um, you know, all of this kind of thing. It's just fantastic. And so, oh, goodness, really am on the edge of my seat um, waiting for what happens. But, yeah, I mean, I this book, you know, when the Andorians come to, to Julian's rescue, it you you just I I wanted to stand up and cheer, um, because finally something good happened to him. You know, I mean, Dave had really put him through the ringer, and then obviously, you know, he's in this black ops uh, Starfleet cell that hardly anybody knows about. You're pretty sure he's just going to disappear, and then, you know, Deanna with the help of the Andorians comes to the rescue, and it's just it was awesome. So uh, it makes me really excited because I know David's writing declassified next year and what he's going to be doing with with julian there and so i just oh man good stuff that was um the, the whole kind of subplot with deanna there and then you know sort of like being tied into to what vale was doing is, is i wanted to give deanna an opportunity to do something cool and but but definitely something that would remain kind of in her wheelhouse so you know while Riker is kind of doing his you know his like you know shoulder forward walk stuff you know deanna's kind of coming at it from a different point of view is an empathetic point of view she's like okay I, you know I, mean, I, I know what it is to be a diplomat i know how to game the system and here's here's a situation that i don't like is how am i going to use all of my talents how am i going to game the system in order to kind of you know help bashir get out of the situation that he's in and vale says well look, i've got this piece of information can you make this work and deanna's like yeah i got this no worries you know and and, and i was really pleased about having an opportunity for her to kind of be a diplomat 
to to do mm. what she's there to do on Titan. But in this situation, in the heart of the Federation, rather than dealing with like a first contact or something like that, this is kind of traditional diplomacy in, in the true political sense of it. So um, getting her to kind of like, you know, be able to stretch her legs a little bit and that, that was fun. And uh, and I like the way it played out. I, you know, I really enjoyed the, um, some of the scenes that I had the most fun writing. It's like where um, Vale and, and, and Deanna are interrogating the guy in the yes. cell. <laughs> And uh, and they and they're just and they're they're doing almost like a kind of good cop bad cop routine with this guy, and then it becomes kind of bad cop worse cop, and uh, and that was really fun because I could just imagine those those characters kind of playing that off and uh, you know it's, there there are times sometimes when you know when you when you it's like a real gift being able to write these characters that you know I, I've lived with for so many years that have been great fun for me and have given me a lot of enjoyment and then having the opportunity to kind of put them into a situation and say. Let's have these guys just run around and do some cool stuff. And getting to write that, it's just it, it doesn't even feel like work, which is great. Don't tell my boss I said that though. Oh, oh, I wasn't recording then. That's not on. Yeah. The, that's not on the podcast. <laughs> no, it's, it's all really, really hard work. I deserve all the money I'm paid. It's like oh, it's like getting blood out of a stone. It really. Is. <laughs> such, well, such and- a chore. But um, I was going to pick up on something else you said about section thirty-one because you mentioned that earlier, and I, and I didn't say that. Is we talked about. Section thirty-one being the kind of the, the the boogeyman, and and you know this this they are the the personification of the dark side of the Federation. You know, then not in a kind of mirror universe kind of shouty way where they're using their agonizers on people, but in a much more insidious way. You know, that the that they are the Federation kind of pushed too far down the dark road. And I know we we did talk about how much Section thirty-one would be involved in this story. And in the end, we I think it was definitely a kind of conscious decision on everybody's part that that they would not be players in this narrative in a large sense, that it would not be this is a Section 31 plot. Because I think in a way that kind of feels like it's done, that yeah. we, we've been there. And certainly, you know, there's... With Star Trek in the darkness. Definitely, yeah. With, with, with That was very much in the kind of consciousness and the thing, you know, we, well, you know the movie hit a lot of those beats. We don't, want, we don't really want to do the same thing. We want to try and take it in a different way. But the idea of Section Thirty One kind of oh they're they're totally there all through this story, you know I think their their influence kind of marbles it and in a way I I can just imagine those guys they're just sitting off by the the sidelines and going well we're just going to see how this plays out yeah you know we're not going to interfere um, because Section Thirty One you know if it goes one way they'll be able to handle it and if it goes another way they'll be able to handle it because that's the kind of guys they are they've got a contingency yeah. for everything. And I think that's what they're doing as the fall plays out. It's like, oh, this thing happened. Okay, well, um, how does that affect us? Well, it does this and this. Okay, well, we're just going to sit here and we're going to watch. Mm. And if this and if this becomes a threat to us, that's when we're going to step in. But right now, they're just letting it. They're, they're going to let it ride and see how it plays out. And it'll be interesting to see if um, you know Dave picks up on that with with declassified too. Well, it was kind of scary in the sense that um, you know it, it seemed like when they were used. They had more um, value to what they were doing in helping Julian um, and their desire really to see the Federation and its ideals go forward than, say, the president at the moment. I mean, that was, I think, the scariest part of of the series for me so far is that Section 31 seemed more legitimately good than who the president of the Federation was at this point. And that was scary. 
that see that 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 illustrates very much the you know the the nature of when you're when you're somebody in a position of power and you've come from a place where you, you've been injured by war and it's it's affected and it's changed your mindset you maybe lose the perspective you know lose the ability to kind of think is right. there another way that doesn't involve violence and hardship you know is there a is there a solution to this problem which does not involve me drawing my sword and if you've and if and if you know if it's the you know if all if the only tool you have in your toolkit is a hammer pretty much everything starts to look like a and you know, and that's the situation that we have with um, with um, Ishan, the you know the the president pro tem, is that is a guy who only really has a hammer, and that's why he's seeing things in this sort of light, you know. And he's he's he's, he's a hawkish guy. He thinks this is the solution, you know. He thinks this is the way to solve all the problems that they're having, and he doesn't see it from other people's point of view, you know. That's the whole scene at the end of the story where Riker basically kind of calls him on the carpet about it and, and it's it's almost like Riker's in a way it's Riker's declaration of war to this guy oh yeah he's, he says you know what you know again it, it's like uh, in a way you know like Picard's kind of like the line must be drawn here speech you know it's like it's Riker's own take on that it's, it's look I know what you're doing and I'm going to stop you and and you know and maybe even in a way he's kind of giving him the opportunity to kind of look you know you're on the brink here do you want to be like Min Zeif or you know the other politicians in history who who are known as being you know guys who who made the made the wrong choice? Is you've got an opportunity here not to do that, and I'm telling you this is wrong and people aren't going to stand for it. And he doesn't hear him because he's not listening at all. He's just like you know yeah you've come into this room to just kind of chat at me and uh, and I'm I'm not listening because I know I'm right because he's not even going to consider the fact that he's wrong. Yeah. And, and and that kind of villain is always the the hardest to beat because they don't see themselves as the bad guy. You know, Ishan sees himself as the hero of the story, and how that plays out is going to be challenging for our characters to deal with. Well, and it and it I think again it leaves all of us on the edge of our seat, just you know waiting for what Dayton is is going to do. Um, and I I know he will just wrap it up splendidly, um, but uh, definitely can't wait for the next couple of weeks. Uh, for that to come out and, and then be able to to dive right in. Actually, the truth is, Q solves it in the first ten minutes, and then the rest of the book is him on vacation at Risa. There you go, I've spoiled it. Oh well, I mean, um, you know, it's great because I feel like these characters could really use a vacation. Um, yeah, I think we should definitely at the end. I think you know, like maybe for an ebook release, would be just kind of like they go on holiday to the hot springs or something, and just you know, it's just like everybody has a chill out and relax. It's like, hey, war's over, guys. You know. Let's all just cool down. Everything <laughs> that would be really funny. I can't. I just can. I can't imagine. You know. Uh, well, and at this point too, you got the Rikers with their kids, the Cisco's with their kids, the Picards with their kids. Um, you know, so you've got all these families, and then you know you could add in all the other characters that are our favorites, and just you know let them have a great time. Uh, well, you you know that you know that Quark would be hiring out his stuff as like babysitters and stuff like that. Oh, you know, finding a, 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 that would be a lucrative opportunity for him, definitely. Right. You know, he'd be hiring out Davo girls as, uh, as babysitters. <laughs> okay. Well, James, I was looking and um, I, I didn't see you um, at least right now signed up for a new Star Trek book in 2014. Please tell me you do have one in the works. We are discussing uh, not one but two Star Trek books. Yes, excellent. Um, nothing's on, no inks on contracts. Nothing's uh, cast in stone yet. But um, I have put together an outline for um, a, a TOS novel, uh, 
So um, kind of five-year mission era, what I always think of as the kind of, you know, the, uh, okay. the, the, um, the, the, the yellow, red, and blue tunic sort of era of Star Trek, you know. Because um, I've always, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wall classic Trek fanboy, definitely so, you know. And, and it was, you know, it's my first fandom, my first great love in sci-fi. And although I got to write kind of in the classic Trek era, when I did Cast No Shadow, that was more the kind of movie era. Well, I always think of as the maroon tunic kind of era of Star Trek. Ah, uh, great uniforms. You know, and I've always wanted to do something that, that kind of harks back to the the sort of the widescreen Technicolor era of, of the, the original Star Trek. You know, something that feels like the, the, the big bombastic brassy stuff that we would right. see. And, and then, you know, and, and, and the kind of crazy stuff they did in the animated series. All of that, you know, I've got a lot of love for that. So... I have an idea that I'm kicking around for that, um, but right now we haven't scheduled it. Uh, and beyond that, we're talking about the possibility of another Titan novel. But oh. that's, again, it's all kind of very early days right now. We're Excellent. all just sort of like trying to figure out what, what will work well and, and in terms of scheduling. Because right now, I, my, my schedule is kind of crazy busy, and we're just trying to find the opportunity to sort of slot everything in. Oh, good. But well, I'm certainly, however it shakes out, whether it, you know, whether it's those projects or, or whether it becomes um, something completely different, I, I, I have not uh, any desire to stop writing Star Trek stuff because it's just so much fun for me. It really is like uh, putting on a pair of comfortable shoes and just easing back into it, you know, because I love this universe so much. It really, really it feels like coming home again every time I, I start writing a Star Trek story. Well, um. The last thing that I, I love to do is is just tell everyone what's coming out for you. Um, what do you what do you need to tell the listeners that they need to be going to get that's yours? And uh, of course, where can everybody follow you? Okay, well, um, right now towards the end of the year, um, I'm doing some stuff for for Black Library for the Warhammer Forty Thousand series. We're having this um, Advent calendar all through December, and we're releasing kind of little ebook short stories. And I'm doing a couple of short stories for that. Um, uh, what else? Let's see. I have a top secret tie-in project that I'm working on right now, which I can't announce, but I'm hoping to talk more about that in the new year. It's uh, it's not a science fiction project, something completely different. So, um, keep an eye and uh, I'll be able to say more about that, hopefully kind of January, February. And I've just done a short story, um, called turn of the card for a giant monster anthology called Kaiju rising which is coming out from Ragnarok Press this month. And that was, uh, that was huge fun. That was basically me writing a Godzilla movie set in London oh. you know, in a short story. And, uh, and, and having, you know, having thoroughly enjoyed watching Pacific Rim earlier this year, that was an opportunity to kind of you know, play with that. And I really I had, I had a great time putting that together. So that'll, that'll, be, uh, that'll be due out soon. In terms of um, where you can find me online, um, I have a, a blog, at, and that is at jameswallow.blogspot.co.uk. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at jmswallow. Uh, and I've just recently started up a, a Tumblr account where I post pictures of interesting clouds or anything cool that I've seen, and that's uh, jmswallow.tumblr.com. So you can get hold of me anywhere there. And uh, I'm always open if anybody wants to to ping me on I, I sometimes post on the the trek bbs site and a couple other places so um always open to chat to people about star trek because you know, um it's fun and it's what i do awesome james well thank you so much i know it's late there for you but i really do appreciate you taking out your time talking to me it's so much fun to get to talk to you about star trek because honestly i think 
we could just talk for hours because there's always another tangent to go on. <laughs> My pleasure, man. It's, it's it's always fun to 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 come on the show, and and you guys keep up the great work as well because I'm a I'm a regular listener. Oh, thank you. Of course, I have to then now and then I have to skip over stuff because you know you're reviewing issues of comics that I haven't read. But it's always it's always fun to 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 see you guys getting into it, and I can certainly say on, on behalf of all the Star Trek writers, we really appreciate your support and the support of uh, your listeners and the readership too. Well, it's definitely our pleasure, and I hope that you have a great night and a happy holidays as well. You too. Well, Matthew, once again, another great interview with James. I'm really sorry I wasn't able to join with the way the time zones worked out, but I really enjoyed listening back as I was doing the editing. And, you know, you're you're a bit of a celebrity, I think, now, Matthew, aren't you? I understand there's a little a little hidden Easter egg in the poison chalice related to you. Well, Chris, uh, there is. So uh, on the other side of the page, James and I were talking, and he was talking about how he named a uh, a character in the book after a friend of his. And I was just thinking out loud. I was like, man, that would be so cool. If somebody did that. And he goes, why well, I, I actually did. I, I named a, a ship after you. Do you didn't catch that? It's like, what? So he takes me to the page here. And, and um, apparently there is this awesome Andorian ship, this Atler class escort cruiser, the ADS Matt Russ. And he named it after me. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah, which even cooler though, Chris, he said he was listening to our show. We were talking about some Andorians and some comics, and he was like, I should name that uh, that ship after Matt Rushing. So, uh, yeah, so cool to be a part of, you know, literary history, a New York Times bestselling book. Uh, I love it. <laughs> That's really, really awesome. Very awesome. Thanks, James. That's great. So I bet there are a lot of fights taking place on that ship, though, aren't there? Uh, there's a ton of fight scenes going on on that ship, um, you know. But, uh, hey, it's an Andorian ship, and, and I don't, I you know, personally, blue-skinned women are just fine with me. So this is fantastic. Think of all the great ale that you get to drink also. Oh, my gosh, Andorian. That's right, Andorian ale. I mean, this is this is just getting better and better. All right. that That is really awesome. Well, that was a great interview, as I said, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. The Unmade Starfleet Academy movie. You know, even even on paper. Okay, do we want to do the the script, which was written by the guy who wrote Star Trek V, or do we want to do the script, which was written by the guy who wrote Star Trek II? Earl Grey. The ships of TNG. Oh, no, it's one ship that splits into three parts, just like the D is one ship that splits into two parts. It's not a Voltron. It's, it's one <laughs> ship. <laughs> and Al formed the saucer. The orb. Dr. Bashir, I presume commentary. I know. The, it's just a hostile. The look on Cisco's face the whole time, he's just looking at Zimmerman like, all right, you're a, you're a piece of work, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to the journey! Cisco. And obviously, Seska couldn't let go, and she proved that by having his child against his will. Yeah! Now here is the Maury Show twist of the future. (sighs) He does not impregnate her, she impregnates herself with his DNA, or so she thought. But he is not the father! The Ready Room. The Ship. 
but it's also really gloomy and it's sad. I never want to go back there. I don't want to like re-experience that. Like just the visual of a candy of being able to go outside and, and talk to the Vorta and Wow, I maybe didn't phrase that properly. I, I, meant, I meant the change in color and lighting. Oh. I did not mean, but she's a very I thought you were talking about Kimana. <laughs> she is fetching. No. She's, a, she's a fetching lass. Warp 5. Zindi Evolution. Well, I think maybe Okapa and Insectoid are two races that could have a life together. You know, you've got the nine-year lifespan of the Okapa. You've got the 12-year lifespan of an Insectoid. If they meet at the right time, it could be, could be a beautiful love story. Commentary, Trek Stars. Iris Stephen Bears, Star Trek. And it's the first time I heard him say something that he said several times over the years is, you know, one day, one day when we're not the middle child, we're not the stepchild, people are going to go, holy crap, look at DS9. Literary Treks. Slings and arrows, a sea of troubles. You, you see in this book, too, that Picard is facing this melancholy because they've been worried about the Borg, and now the Dominion is on the horizon, and there's these two things, and obviously this is before first contact, so that hasn't happened yet. And Picard seems to be kind of weighed down in this story in some ways. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week, and some days we even have two shows, and you'll find them in a variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom, lots of ways for you to get our shows. So check them all out and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And Matthew, if people have some questions for us, or comments, or thoughts on anything we talked about in news today, on ongoing number 28, Kenmore Conflict, and of course, on James's book, The Poison Chalice, there are a variety of ways where you can send us your comments and questions. And that's by going to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Just choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks. That will come to Matthew and me both by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums, where there's a section for Literary Treks as well as one for books and one for comics. And you can talk to us and other listeners there. In social media, you can find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And on Twitter, you'll also find us tweeting away all the time about Star Trek under username trek.fm. And uh, just drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. And also, you know, if you like the show, drop by iTunes and leave us an iTunes review as well. It only takes a minute. And uh, that helps other fans of Star Trek books and comics find the show as they're searching for podcasts. Because it's not necessarily the easiest topic to locate with the, uh, the plethora of listening options you have there in the iTunes store. Now, Matthew, when you're not commanding your own Andorian cruiser, where can people find you? Well, Chris, uh, you can find me on MattRushing02 on that official Twitter site for my command uh, there on that Andorian vessel. Um, Also, what's great is now that I have this Andorian vessel, I can start that, um, you know, wine service from Bajor. Uh, And so we should have regular shipments coming in that get that website up and running. Uh, So that's really exciting. So look for that coming soon. And then... 2014 is apparently going to be huge. Uh, we also do the Orb Chris, where we talk Deep Space Nine all the time, and I also have my own personal blog, 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com, and I write about all sorts of different things there, movie reviews, just my own thoughts on lots of different things, other books that I read that aren't Star Trek, um, that kind of stuff. So, uh, Chris, uh, when you're not lamenting the fact that Yuki Sulu is a traitor, where can we find you? 
Yeah, I was really disappointed in her. I don't know what I'm going to tell our parents. Ah, man, that's going to be a tough combo. (laughs) Of course, Kirk told me, you know, just lie about it. So Yeah, well, I mean, he's good at that. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. You can also find me elsewhere on the network besides doing the orb with Matthew. You can find me every week on the Ready Room with hosts from all over the network, as well as special guests as we talk about Star Trek news and all five live action Star Trek series. You'll find me on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. And you'll find me on my interview show, Matterstream, where I talk to writers and actors and scientists and creatives and all sorts of people about topics loosely related to Star Trek. I got a couple of new shows recorded yesterday, in fact. I have Alec Peters and Richard Hatch, who, of course, everyone knows from Battlestar Galactica on to talk about their new project, Star Trek Axanar. Also talked to Dylan Nord from WeCare.com about the LeVar Burton efforts for AIDS research. So check those out as well. Also, Matthew, before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsors for this week's show. Your support of our sponsors makes it possible for us to bring literary treks to you every week. And first, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS, that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. Create your own space today. Try it free for 14 days. Just go to squarespace.com for your free trial and use offer code TREK12 to save 10%. Plus, choose the annual plan and get a free custom domain registration. Also, Matthew, there is audible.com. Now, Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. They are the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. Of course, there's classic books there. Current bestsellers are there as well. They have a lot of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, Spock's World, lots of TNG novels as well, lots of TOS novels from the numbered series. And those are narrated by many of the actors that you know and love from the show. And as a Trek of Film listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books that you've yet to read or that latest novel from your favorite author. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. And that also helps us keep literary treks coming to you every week. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for their support of literary treks and the network. And lastly, there's one more way you can directly help us keep literary treks coming to you each week, and that's by going to trek.fm slash donate to get our original alien illustrations. These are original artwork pieces done by Toba Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. They're available as badges and as art prints, and you can mix and match. Choose which ones you want in which format. We have different levels of contribution that you can choose from as well. And your donations help us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring all of our shows to you each week. So we really thank you for helping us keep the network going. All right. So, Matthew, it's been a great year on Literary Treks, and we would like to remind everyone once again, this is the last show for the year, and we're going to be taking a two-week break during the holidays, both for Matthew and everyone over there who are celebrating holidays at the end of December, as well as for me here in Japan, because the first week of January is our big holiday period with the New Year's. So we're going to rest up a little bit, and then we'll be back on January 12th with a new show. And uh, we really appreciate you guys listening all year long. 
Well, Chris, it is great that everybody's been listening to us and supporting us and writing reviews and all that kind of thing. We really do appreciate it. Um, you know, I just want to say, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. So, yeah, you better watch out. All right, you better. I thought you were going to say Santa Kirk is coming to town, but yeah, but yeah. Santa Claus is going to be visiting a lot of people, too. Well, Santa Kirk, I feel like, has a whole different reason for coming to town. <laughs> um, most likely to visit Seven of Nine. Um, but, I just uh, say, you know, Santa Kirk, I've never seen anyone carry around as much mistletoe with them as he does. That is true. He carries a lot of mistletoe. <laughs> he really does. All right. Well, <laughs> until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.